Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are going to be listening to the full interview with singer and songwriter Benjamin Scheuer. Hello, and welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to learn more about the program or view any interviews that aren't featured, visit namm.org slash library. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is another exciting episode of the Music History Project, which is based on the interviews of the NAM Oral History Collection. And we are so thrilled to provide you with one of the early Zoom interviews that we did during the pandemic. And that's with one of the uh, great storytellers in music, and that's Benjamin Scheuer. And the cool thing about Benjamin's story is he echoes what we have been noticing here for years in the oral history team. And that is songwriters are often fantastic storytellers. (laughs) And boy, this guy does it in spades. And what a great, you know, sort of uh, depth of story. It's not just, okay, you know, one experience or these type of things. He's almost seeking new ways of telling stories and new stories to tell in different ways. And I really appreciate that about him. And so I was a little bit of a fan. um, Well, okay, a big fan. And um, (laughs) nobody has yet asked, okay, so whose idea was it to interview this guy? So um, (laughs) mine. You are your own recommendation. (laughs) (laughs) Which is kind of rare. You know, we try really hard to take the suggestions of people and we've got a lot of those. So we're going to be doing that for a long time. But every once in a while, I think it's a neat idea when we can sneak in our own. And this was certainly one of those for me. And I think that the results, it just still make me smile. Yes, definitely. I was lucky enough to be there for this virtual interview while I was virtually there in the background. (laughs) Um, And yeah, just what a cool guy. So passionate about what he does. Um, And he really makes you feel like you're there with him when he's, you know, singing a song, telling a story through music. Um, And something special about this episode of the podcast is we're actually going to get to hear some of those songs because Benjamin was nice enough to play some of his songs for us during the interview. So you're in for a real treat today. Definitely. I have a feeling, Dan, if you had asked him just to do a whole concert, he would have just done it right there before (laughs) you. (laughs) You can just tell, like, like Mike said, like he just was so passionate and loved just sharing everything with Mm. you and with with our audience um and that's you know definitely comes across in this video uh interview so starting off we're going to just hear a little bit about um him growing up and where his passion for music came from and uh you'll get a little bit of a taste about a thing called a cookie tin banjo which will make more sense later on (laughs) but i'll tease you with that for right now uh, so here is the uh, Benjamin Scheuer talking a little bit about his passion for music. Hello, everybody. My name is Benjamin Scheuer. I'm an American singer-songwriter, and I'm based now uh, in September 2020 in London. I appreciate so much you being a part of the NAM Oral History Program, Benjamin. Thank you so much. Thanks for so much for having me, Dan. 
So one of the things that's very intriguing to, uh, to us is uh, where passion for music comes from. And I wonder if we could back up a little bit, start from sort of the beginning and let us know, did you have music in your home when you were growing up? My father taught me to play the guitar when I was a very little boy. He was what I call a Sunday musician. You know, he didn't, didn't, didn't play professionally. He played with great passion. There was always a record playing the Rolling Stones, John Coltrane, Mozart, Thelonious Monk, the Who, uh, a Broadway cast album, and, and my father, my father played the guitar, and I was a little boy. I, I was so excited uh, to watch him play and hear him play, and he built me a little toy out of the the lid of a cookie tin, and um, he made me a cookie tin banjo, and I wrote I wrote a song about it. It was the first song on a record I made called Songs from the Lion and a show that I performed called The Lion. And at some point this uh, in, in, in our get together today, if you'd like to hear it, I would be honored to share it. You know, that, that's so funny because I've seen that title of that song and I kind of scratched my head and said, I wonder what that's all about. <laughs> it's all about where, where my love of music came from. And that's very much due to my father. And now I've got, now I've got a, a child of my own and it, the song has taken on a new resonance. That's really, really neat. I wonder growing up, were there any particular songs that you latched onto or looking back songs that are important to you from that period? Very much so. Um, the song um, In My Life by the Beatles was my father's favorite song. And uh, my father was a big Beatles song and, and as was Get Back was a big, a big song. My, my dad loved Get Back. And so I remembered when I first learned to go. And I thought that was the coolest thing. I must have been maybe, I don't know, six, seven years old. And I ran to show my father that I knew how to put these chords together for Get Back. Yeah, the, uh, there's a song, there's a song um, called The Garden Song that goes, Inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this garden grow. All it takes is a rake and a hoe and a piece of fertile ground. Grain for grain, sun and rain, find my way in nature's chain. In my body and my brain is the music of the land. And my father used to play that song to me. Who, was, who wrote that? That was David, David Mallet wrote that song and I got to see David Mallett play Clopaceme in Cambridge just a couple of years ago and told him told him of the how that song really played a great role in in my childhood and uh Pinball Wizard from Tommy the, from the Who I always thought that was such a you know I should probably tune it before I play it but that that was a uh, a super compelling musical moment to me, as was Van Halen's record, 1984. My father gave me 1984 on a tape when I was seven or eight years old. And I listened to it rollerblading as we did in the suburbs of New York back in, in, the, uh, <laughs> in, in the 80s. And I just thought it was the coolest sounding thing I'd ever heard. Uh, I'd never heard a guitar do anything quite like that. And I was absolutely mesmerized. And Right around that age, I decided I was going to learn how to do what, what that guy, Eddie Van Halen, was doing. <laughs> That's awesome. That is so cool. And so was the uh, guitar your only instrument, or did you play other instruments? So I grew up playing, the, as well as the guitar, playing the piano. 
uh, and I took piano lessons from when I was five years old at a music school in Scarsdale, New York called Hoff Barthelson. And I studied jazz and classical piano. I also played the drums, uh, studied jazz drums and played a lot of rock and roll drums. And I played the alto saxophone as well. I studied guitar. I studied classical guitar from maybe when I was about seven years old, started studying classical guitar as well. I think I sang in the choir and at school and played in the jazz band and and just played as many, it really is like anything, if it had strings, you could hit it. Like I, I, I did my best to play it, but really I suppose it was around when I was age 12, I went, I was off to music camp and I wasn't sure if it was gonna be drums or guitar that I was gonna focus on and I broke my leg just before I left. And And of course, you know, you need your legs to play drums. Uh, and so it was really that summer that I was just practicing, you know, seven or eight hours a day and it became the, uh, became the guitar and yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that's so I, I, from really from age 12, I knew that the guitar was the, the instrument that I wanted to dedicate my life to. That is so cool. You know, uh, Benjamin, another aspect of, um, uh, what NAM does, of course, is advocacy and, and music education promotion. And I wonder with your band camp experiences and your lessons of uh, playing in a jazz band in school and so on, uh, what are your thoughts about music education and maybe some of the music instructors that you've had? I've had some extraordinary teachers. Um, Chris Rosenberg taught me jazz guitar. He was a professor at the Manhattan School of Music. I wasn't matriculating at Manhattan School of Music, but I was studying privately with him. And he had played in Ornette Coleman's band as a guitar player for many years. And Chris, more than teaching me how to be a guitar player, really taught me how to be a musician and how to be a better person. And if anybody thinks these things are not connected, they, they, they're missing the point. Uh, Chris, Chris is an extraordinary teacher. Uh, he, his philosophy on pedagogy is you teach the student, not the subject. And, and I've really tried to, to carry on Chris's, pass along Chris's energy. And so when I was touring my show, The Lion, uh, I would give free songwriting masterclasses to kids. And, and what all a masterclass is, is somebody would be working on a song and they would bring it in and perform it. And then we would just talk about it and talk about general songwriting tenets, like why is rhyme good? And how can you use it? And why is repetition good? And what does scansion mean? And uh, why should we read Stephen Sondheim's essay, uh, Rhymes and Its Reason, you know? So th things like that. I, uh, Jan Davies was my piano teacher and I was a little boy and she made me she made me love piano. You know, I mean, most kids' parents had to convince their kids to practice. My parents really had to tell me to stop because I just wanted to go. And it was very much down to, to some of the teachers I had. That's, that's for sure. Well said. That's cool. Um, and before I forget, I wanted to ask you about your, your first guitar. Well, my first guitar really was this cookie tin banjo. So I, I think I'd better play this song because I, I, I do keep coming back to it. So here's a story of how I learned to play music. It's called Cookie Tin Banjo and it's a true story. My father has an old guitar and he plays me folk songs. 
My father has an old guitar. He plays me folk songs. There is nothing I want more than to play like him. He goes to the basement and builds me a cookie tin banjo. He builds me a cookie tin banjo. The strings are made of rubber bands. The strap is an old red necktie. The body is the big round lid of a metal cookie tin. When he plays his old guitar, I play my cookie tin banjo. Play my cookie tin banjo right along with him. The more we play together, the more I fall in love with music. And I realize that my banjo is a toy that I've outgrown. I want strings of steel and something new and something. And so he gets me a guitar to call my own. Then dad says to me on this fine afternoon, let's sit on the stairs. I'll teach you to tune. He hands me a pick. One that's little and black, he shows me the G chord. I've never looked back. Now buried somewhere in a closet is my cookie tin banjo. In my arms is my guitar, my greatest source of joy. For the life that I have now, I'm grateful to my father, who gave the gift of music to his boy. It started with a simple homemade toy. It's too early to make me cry. That was fantastic. What a great story. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, Benjamin, were there music stores in your neighborhood that you went to growing up? So I grew up in the town of Larchmont, and um, there was a Sam Ash in White Plains that I would go to. And, um, and when I was really lucky, my father would take me into New York City and we would go to, to Manny's, or we'd go to, um, to Rudy's. Uh, or um, when I got a little older, I used to hang out at Matt Umanov's guitar shop on Bleecker Street. And I got to know, I got to know Matty Umanov pretty well. And um, um, of course, um, Manny's is now closed. Rudy's, Rudy's is still there in, in Soho and um, no longer on 42nd Street. And, uh, and Matt Umanov has closed up his shop. But before, before they closed, Matt handed me this guitar. This is a Martin OM18 VS. VS stands for Vintage Series. And it's a, it's a copy of the 1933 Martin All Mahogany with no truss rod. And Matt put this into my hands at the counter on Bleecker Street. And I'm, I, after I graduated college, I used to hang out in the village. I moved to Greenwich Village, and so I was a real Greenwich Village denizen. I lived there for 14 years before I moved to London. And yeah, Matt, Matt, Matt Umanov's guitar shop, as well as Rudy's, sort of became second homes to me. Uh, I, this guitar comes... Well, it comes from, I should say it comes through Rudy's, but it was built, this was built by a company called Froggy Bottom. And Froggy Bottom is a Vermont-based guitar builder. Uh, it's a fellow called Michael Millard, and he's been building for 50 years. 
Uh, and when I was about to tour a show that I'd written around the United States, uh, I was going to open off Broadway and then tour around the U.S. Shows called The Lion. I knew I needed a guitar that was going to live in drop C. And so I asked Froggy Bottom to build me a, a big bodied 14 fret guitar with a walnut back and sides. And with a little lion, maybe you can see it there, a little lion on the neck heel. So uh, I was connected to the Froggy Bottom guitars through, through Rudy at Rudy's. And as I got this Martin at, um, at Matt Umanov's. Yeah, man, I love all of the guitar stores. T.R. Crandall Guitar Shop in Manhattan. Uh, I like Tom Crandall a lot. I've got one of the guitars that he, he built that I toured, I, I brought it on tour with me with the Lion as well. I mean, like if, if there's a music store, I've probably hung out there for too long. That's for sure. So that was Benjamin Scheuer talking a little bit about his passion for music and where it came from. Just already such a cool interview. Um, <laughs> he's already performing for us. I think we're like 10 <laughs> minutes into this interview and it's already a concert. So that's great. No talking doubt. about guitars and music stores. And I mean, what else could you want? This is this so is good. So, I told you guys, right? <laughs> I, you listeners out there, I told you. Uh, this is great. I just love his passion, as Mike said. And um, and all relatable stuff. That's what's really kind of refreshing about this one is that, you know, he played drums like Mike. He played saxophone like Ashley and I. You know, it's like, okay, we, we get who this guy is. And that's really kind of fun, too. Um, and then, of course, he puts his skills, which are just incredible, uh, to the, the simplistic idea of an instrument that his dad made into this really clever, fun, fun song. And I'm really mm -hmm. glad that he explained uh, the story behind it. Uh, that was really special, I think. Yeah. And I mean, you got to imagine, what would what would we be hearing now if he hadn't broken his leg for that summer, <laughs> mm, for summer right. camp? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yeah. A whole different, whole different career he could have had. Still would have been just as great. I, I'm, I'm pretty confident in that, but uh, definitely a different direction. And, and I think him and Mike would have been best friends probably at some point. <laughs> but I just love that that turn of events that, you know, he dabbled in all these instruments and then, you know, just kind of fate took over and, and that's where he landed. And uh, we're all happy he did because, hmm. man, he's talented. Uh, but anyways, getting back into his interview, uh, we're going to listen a little bit more about uh, just how he evolved with, with his passion of music and playing and songwriting and kind of where that took him. Uh, and he's definitely going to give himself a shout out for being a gear nerd. So he's going to rail off all the things he loves. So be prepared to jot all those down <laughs> if you want. <laughs> um, but here is, we're going to go back into uh, Benjamin's interview one of the major aspects of, of your career course is songwriting. And I kind of wonder how that all developed. My, my father died when I was 13 years old and my connection to him was very much uh, through music and by playing music and by playing guitars that he owned an old Martin 0021, a Telecaster from 1966, uh, a Paul Reed Smith guitar, one of the first cherry red standard PRSs. Like holding these guitars, I felt like I was holding a piece of my father. And well, I suppose it was Yip Harburg, the guy who wrote Somewhere Over the Rainbow, who said that music is the way we feel 
and words are the way we think. And so songs allow us to feel our thoughts and think our feelings. And I wanted to put how I felt into song. I wanted to distill it. And so really at age, I mean, my father died just a few days before I turned 14. So when I turned, as a 14 year old, I really started focusing on songwriting as as therapy, as expression, as a way to control that which previously had controlled me. You know, if I could take the emotion of grief and mold it into a song, then suddenly this thing that had been a cloud over my head was suddenly something that I could then offer to the world as something beautiful that I'd, I'd crafted. And when I was 16, I moved to the UK with my family. My mother's British. And I went to a high school that had a wonderful music and theater program. And they asked me, could I try and write a piece of musical theater? And so I wrote a thinly veiled metaphor about my father's death. Uh, the show was about an art gallery where the premise was if a portrait painting of a person was burned, that person would then come alive out of the painting. It was this sort of reincarnation and what is art and what is life and what is death and heady stuff for a 16 year old. Uh, but here's what I can say. My, when my father was alive, he'd taken me to see so many wonderful pieces of theater, Guys and Dolls. I love Frank Lesser, you know, The Who, bring in the, the, the Who's Tommy, bring in the noise, bring in the funk. And all these shows had huge pit bands. I'd never been to see downtown fringe theater where the pit band was just a guitar and a pianist. And so when I was asked to write a piece of theater for my high school, I didn't know any better. I scored it for an 11 piece orchestra. And and in putting together the, my first sort of long form piece of songwriting, I must have written 10 or 12 songs for this piece of theater uh, and then scored it for an orchestra. I really caught the bug pretty seriously at a very young age. And I applied to Harvard to study English and to do theater. And I was accepted there. And, um, and so I wrote the freshman musical at Harvard. And then I wrote another piece of musical theater at Harvard. And I was always playing in bands and always playing the guitar. And, and with some of the money that my father had left me, I got some recording equipment and I became a real nerd for where do you put microphones? What microphones do you put? What, what do they sound like uh, when you put them in different places? And so I, I'm, uh, for, for all of the NAM particular, like geek nerd, you know, gear nerds, I'm such a gear nerd. I'm a total gear nerd. Uh, not, not only guitars and amplifiers, but, but microphones and preamps, compressors and EQs. And I really started nerding out as to like, how does a microphone help tell a story? If my focus is, is songwriting, then what's the story of the song? And how can the right microphone help to elevate that story? You know, is screaming into an SM57 gonna be the thing? Or do you wanna sing into a crystalline C12 into a 1070, a 1073 and an, you know, an 1176? Like I, I've done both, both have their value. I mean, the second vocal chain is about $25,000 more. So, you know, depending on, depending on what your timing and your budget is. Uh, and yeah, when I was at when I was at Harvard, I studied English and focused on a lot of musical theater and making records and performing in bands. And then I moved to New York and was playing in pop rock bands. And I really just thought I wanted to be Eddie Van Halen. And then really the defining moment of my life happened. I was 28 years old and I was diagnosed with advanced stage cancer. And I did six months of chemotherapy 
uh, and it was Hodgkin's lymphoma, stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. I did six months of chemotherapy, and I obviously I survived. I'm here. I'm healthy and I'm well. I don't want to go back to playing pop music. I have some important stories to tell, and I want to take that which I like from theater, and that which I like from records, and that which I like from live performance, and and put it all together. And I want to get rid of the stuff that I don't like. And so I wrote a one person little coffee shop gig basically called the lion about what had happened to me and the way it came about was i i just started going to the open mics in the village and i would perform a song or two songs and then i would see other people perform what they perform and the thing about an open mic is you can tell them people are bored because they go get a cup of coffee or they go pee and so if a song, you know, I'd see when people got bored, I'd go home and I'd rewrite that part of the song. And then I'd, uh, I'd, I'd come back to the next open mic and I'd play it again. And eventually I'd started playing sort of five songs in a row, six songs in a row, seven songs in a row, and you couldn't get in the room. The room was packed. And so I took my little autobiographical song cycle theater piece to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, the biggest theater festival in the world uh, in Scotland our show won the award for best lyrics in the festival. Now there are 2,500 shows in this festival. So it was pretty good competition. And then we did a brief run in London and we did a rewrote it, did a, a couple, couple more. Then we brought it to the Manhattan theater club in New York city off Broadway. And the show opened in 2015, this time with seven guitars, with a, a proper director, designer, costume designer, set designer, lighting designer. And uh, the show, The Lion, won the Drama Desk Award for Best Solo Performance on or off Broadway. And it was, it was me and my guitars singing and telling a true story. And so I took that show on tour. And while I was performing the show, I met Mary Chapin Carpenter, American folk singer and songwriter. And, and Mary Chapin invited me to go on tour with her in the United Kingdom. And so I played four dates in the UK, the first of which was at the Royal Albert Hall, which is, I suppose it's a, the sort of British equivalent of Carnegie Hall in terms of its stature. And so my, really my first big gig in London was at the Albert Hall playing with Mary Chapin. And uh, actually she, she covered a song of mine uh, last week, a song I wrote called Lafayette Square about uh, uh, the, the Black Lives Matter demonstrators in Lafayette Square outside of the White House and, um, and their interaction with, the, uh, with militarized police. Interaction is a softened word. Well, you guys, I'm just really loving this. And I'm so grateful uh, that we had this opportunity to capture his interview. I kind of hope we'll do another one with him. I know that he's already working on new projects. So maybe in a couple of years, we'll do an update. Uh, you, you may have noticed, um, those who listen to these full interviews, that uh, there's sort of a trend of what I talk about and how we sort of weave through a person's uh, career. And I always try to remember to ask people about music stores, musical instrument stores that they went to, especially when they were kids dreaming of an instrument that they could afford. And I'm really glad I asked Benjamin because there are some great little details, not only when he initially answered that question, but now 
in the back of his mind is the interest that we have in that part of the music industry. So little tidbits come out from time to time about gear and things like that. So uh, I really appreciate that about his, about his interview for sure. And I also um, am so always so blown away when individuals trust us with personal information that of course helps us better understand their um, their struggle and their challenges, uh, his with cancer. Um, you know, that's, it's humbling, isn't it? You guys, when, when mm -hmm. you hear that and, uh, um, because it does help us understand. And of course, specific projects and songs that he's written, um, certainly, uh, make a lot of sense, uh, to help tell that story, but it's still a choice and um, to let us know. And I, I always appreciate that. Yeah. And I think you definitely, um, like you said, you can hear that in his music. And I think that that's uh, his unique stamp that he gets to put on it is uh, by sharing a little bit of his story. Mm. And I think all song songwriters uh, do that as well. Different varying degrees of how personal they want to get, but there's always that personal stamp on there that he definitely uh, has put on. And I mean, just I, for being still, quote unquote, somewhat younger, <laughs> he has had such an amazing life already and has just has some great perspectives. And I think that that just adds to his songwriting so much. Uh, you can definitely tell that uh, from all the experiences he's had and, and things like that. So yeah, really very, great. very true. Well, let's get back into this interview. Benjamin's going to be talking about a newer song that he wrote called I Am Samantha. He's going to be talking about the story behind it, and he's going to be giving us a full performance. So here is more of Benjamin Scheuer. This is really great. I, it's fantastic. I, a, a couple of things that kind of come to mind. I mean, when you're um, developing a song, what sort of goes through your mind? I mean, is it is it oh, this is a task, and or is it more of I'm trying to express a certain feeling? I mean, that's a great question. I usually spend a lot of time working on a song. Uh, let me give you an example. The most recent single that I released with Atlantic Records is a song called I Am Samantha. And here's how that song came to be. I was in Joe Coffee on Waverly Place. Uh, <laughs> New York City, talking to my friend Samantha about songs with people's names in them. Uh, the song Sean by the Foo Fighters was on the stereo system. And Samantha said, what, Sean gets a song? Who's, Sean even gets a song? Every Maria has a song. Every Michelle has a song. Where's the song for Samantha? And I said, well, you know, Samantha, I'm a songwriter. If you'd like, I could try and write, write a song with your name in it. Why don't you tell me about your name? And Samantha told me the story about how she got her name. Now, Samantha is a transgender lady, and so she chose the name Samantha for herself. And I wrote, I took notes when she told me that we went out to lunch and I just took notes of the whole story she told me about her name and I recorded our conversation and then I was on an airplane the next week. And so I listened back to our two hour conversation and I made more notes and I started sketching and making outlines. And 
And then I spent about three days working on a draft of the song and I sent it along to her and I got her notes back and I was expecting her to say like, oh, this is too personal. This is really quite close to the bone. But Samantha's also a writer and her notes tended to be like, look, I know what you mean, Benjamin, but nobody else is gonna know what you mean. So can you clarify and specify, please? Which is always a great note for a songwriter, clarify and specify. Uh, I got a lot of help with the lyric from a lot of friends of mine, my songwriter friends, Shana Taub, Gene Rowe, Sam Wilmot, Alan Schmuckler, Kate Ferber. I, I would send this, I send this and really every lyric I write to a lot of writers and I just get their feedback. Like what, what can I do to make this work? What is not working about it right now? Uh, Jeff Crayley, who's also my record producer, you know, he's a wonderful songwriter. And I, Samantha was in the loop as I continued working on the song. And so finally I got it to a place where after about six weeks of working every day on this lyric, uh, I was happy with it. Now, I started writing with, with a guitar, this guitar actually, this Martin, uh, in my in my hands. I started writing, I, I was on an airplane because I started writing it in Italy. I was in Italy for a friend's wedding. And I knew really the goal of the song was to make Samantha happy, to tell her story with honesty. And anyway, when I asked her about her name, this is what she told me. In Glenfield, the first female cop was my mom, conservative, tough to dad's liberal calm. Before I was born, mom and dad thought they'd call me Samantha. Then when I got home, the certificate came with my suitable masculine biblical name. Oh, I tried to explain, they do not seem to hear. I am Samantha. I am Samantha. I can no longer write. I leave a note, but I'm found alive. I'm taken to Harlem, blue flickering lights. Oh, Samantha. Oh, go back to Glenfield and say what till now was unsaid to them. Mom breaks down crying and hugs me. And Dad says I'm dead to him. I've lost a lot to have made it this far. I am not broken or bad or bizarre. When you have kids, you can't choose who they are. I'm Samantha, always Samantha.
You're killing me, Benjamin. Fantastic. Unbelievable. Well, I can tell you, if you want to talk a little bit about gear, I can definitely tell you about how that one was recorded, if it is of interest to you and your folks. Uh, absolutely. I would love to hear that. So one thing I, I really like to do is make sure that the vocal of a story song is the is coming through most clearly and has the energy to get the story uh, to get the story across best. So when we recorded that song, first thing we did was put down this guitar to a click. It was a Grand Street recording in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, with Jake Loomis engineering, L U M M U S, and Jeff Crayley uh, producing, G E O F F K R A L Y. So I recorded this guitar. I think we used maybe a KM84 and a Royer 122 in the guitar. And then we, and then, and then I did a scratch vocal and then uh, Jeff Crayley went away and put together a lot of modular synthesizers as the backing track. And then we cut the vocal. And the thing we did to cut the vocal is I think we put up seven or eight different microphones all at the same time and sang a verse and a chorus of the song and then listened to each of the individual microphones. You know, an U87, a 67, a, a 44, uh, um, uh, uh, Sony C, C37, you know, microphones that I oftentimes will, will have had good luck singing into. And usually the one microphone that doesn't work for my voice is a Neumann U47, you know, the most classic vocal microphone. But for whatever reason, in this song, on this day, with the temperature and the humidity and whatever I'd had for breakfast, the U47 sounded closest to mixed. The song sounded like it was already mixed. So that's something I've really learned. To spend the time getting the right vocal microphone saves time later in mixing. And so this song we tracked with a, a Norman U47. Uh, I think the vocal chain was a Neve 1073 uh, preamplifier and uh, an 1176 uh, compressor. Just kind of taking, taking, the, taking the top off, you know, some of the bitier vocal moments. And, and really that's all that's on the track is acoustic guitar, maybe a little bit of electric guitar. I think I played my, my 73 Gold Top Les Paul a little bit. Jeff synthesizer, and then my lead vocal and a couple of vocal harmonies, that's it. And so at that point, the, the vocal mic is really important. And you know, it's, it's people, they, we spend a lot of time picking our guitar and the guitar amp, even the pick we use. You know, the, if you're telling a story, man, your vocal mic is, I think, just the most important thing in like all of the recording world that, that I can think of. So um, I've had a lot of luck. I've, I've had a lot of luck with engineers who are down to spend time finding that, that vocal mic. I, I used this, uh, in, I've been recording in London uh, for a new record that I'm making for Parlophone here in the UK and Atlantic Records in the US. And I've had a lot of luck with, um, a Neumann 67 and a, uh, and a C12 as well. It's a beautiful microphone. Microphone I normally wouldn't choose, but we did it again. We put up, you know, 10 microphones and the C12 won out. So, yeah, uh, there, there you are. Oh, That's and fun. I Am Samantha has a music video uh, directed by uh, transgender director T. Cooper and every single person in the cast, all 27 members of the cast are trans and mm -hmm. it's, online is playing festivals right now it's a beautiful really beautiful video that i'm i'm really really proud of you should be that's fantastic i mean you're you know so often 
the songwriter gets to tell their story, but when you get to tell somebody else's story, that's got to be icing on the cake. I think it's really important to be able to narrate from other people's perspectives. And, and I, well, I suppose, yeah, we can tell other people's stories from our perspective. And that's a wonderful way to write. It's, it's, it's also a wonderful way to do it to make the person talking that person. You know, John Prine does it, right? I am an old woman is the opening line to Angel from Montgomery. Um, what, what a beautiful, what a beautiful song that is. To be able to narrate from other people's perspectives is, is something, especially something that happens in theater all the time, but also something that so many hip hop artists are so good at. And I'm a huge fan of Eminem and his lyric writing and the way he, he t captures entire worlds and manages to play all these characters. I mean, I, I think he's one of the great living playwrights. And so drawing what I love from playwriting and from folk songwriting and from hip hop and from, from theater, you know, musical theater is something that I try to do as a songwriter and record maker. Well, and I know that there are some school of thoughts as far as songwriting where, you know, repeating a line too many times um, is, you know, sort of bad form. But in listening to I Am Samantha, I think, the more you said that phrase, the more I wanted you to say that phrase, right? I mean, because it's, that's the point of the song. And I, I think that honing in on what the delivery is and using words to do it is, you know, a craft for sure. Right. And how can the repetition of a simple hook come to mean different things as the song unfolds? In, in I Am Samantha, in the, the second this in the second chorus i am samantha is preceded by the word but because the lyric is um they send me to counseling to kill off samantha but but i am samantha suddenly takes on a completely new meaning and i mean th i think that's a really important lesson in how how can a, a hook take the value of repetition, which is like it's stuck in our ear and we want to hear it and we want to sing it, and also have it to continue to mean new things and sort of iterate itself. And the, the best, I'm not saying I'm Samantha necessarily falls into this category, but you know, the best songs that repeat things, I think that repetition does continue to sort of, it means something new every time you hear it. Yeah, well said. Um, speaking of sort of your background in songwriting, I know that you had the opportunity to be a part of the Johnny Mercer uh, workshop, and I know some of the folks who have sponsored that and put that together, and I think it would be extra meaningful to hear your thoughts about that. Sure. Well, yeah, um, absolutely. I went to the Johnny Mercer songwriting workshop in 2010. Uh, it is, for those of y'all who don't know, it's a songwriting workshop for writers age 18 to 30, about 15 writers, and it's, uh, you're there for a week. There are no assignments. You write whatever you want. You're paid to go. Uh, there are three master teachers. When I was there, it was Andrew Lippa, Craig Carnelia, and the now late uh, Laurie White. And your job is to write the best songs you can and you're paid to do it and and you can do anything you want and it it was an absolutely game-changing experience for me career changing while i was there i was working on well 
it was right before I was diagnosed with cancer. So I was diagnosed with cancer, I mean, weeks after I was there. I, I did not know that I was sick, but I, I knew something was weird. And Laurie White told me the best piece of songwriting advice I'd ever heard, which is, if you want to write a good song, write what you don't want other people to know about you. If you want to write a great song, write what you don't want to know about yourself. And this proved to be prophetic advice. It is... Uh, it's advice I shall never forget, advice I was honored to learn. Laurie, Laurie died of cancer a few years ago, and she was kind enough to invite me to Nashville to uh, stay with her and her family for just a couple days and take me to the Bluebird Cafe. Um, Mercer, the, the Mercer Workshop and the Mercer Foundation is... I think it's the single most important songwriting foundation that I've come across in my career as a songwriter. All of the writers that I named earlier, Shana Taub, Alan Schmuckler, Sam Wilmot, Gene Rowe, uh, the, the, all of them went to Mercer. Uh, I mean, their track record is unbelievable. Benjamin Justin, who wrote La La Land and who wrote The Greatest Showman and Dear Evan Hansen, I mean, just like the the people who come out of this place become professional, successful songwriters. And also the Mercer Foundation runs, in conjunction with the Goodspeed Theater in Connecticut, a professional musical theater uh, workshop where you just go and work on shows and they pay you to do that. And I got invited there and that's where I worked on my show, The Lion. That's where I met the director for The Lion, Sean Daniels. It's where I met the guys who wrote You're in Town, Mark and Greg. Um, I mean, the, the Mercer Foundation, John, John Briel and, and ASCAP, like the, the, the whole, all of the everybody are my favorite people. And yeah, I, I, I cannot say enough about how important I think that foundation is. And to all writers, 18 to 30, apply, apply, apply. The way you apply is with three songs. Uh, you do demos of them. For goodness sake, get rid of your intros. When you're listening to everybody's application, nobody wants to listen to 30 seconds of G. Like start on your first verse. Better yet, start on your first chorus. <laughs> and, you know, we talked about, at Mercer, we talked about the value of a compelling first line. We talked about why is rhyme good. Uh, we talked about how while you might think your song is about something important, your song has to be able to convey it without any preamble or introduction. Can you play your song and, ha and have it knock people out? Y yeah. I, uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> it's, it's the best thing I've ever done. Well said. And, and your definition of writer and resident. Ah, yes. My definition of writer. So very, very specifically, a writer in residence. I've been a writer in residence at the Goodspeed Theater at Williamstown Theater Festival at O'Neill. It really means they give, they've given me a space to live and potentially a little bit of money and a place to write and just said, make whatever you want. You have no assignments. You don't owe us anything. Do whatever you want. 
And usually there have been other writers living in the house next door, the house across the street, especially at the Mercer funded program at the Goodspeed Theater. When I was a writer in residence there, there were 15 other writers in residence who are some of the best songwriters I've ever met. And so the great thing about that, if you're working on something and you don't know what to do with your second verse, you just go upstairs and Sam Wilmot's there and it's, you know, excuse me, Sam, I don't, I, I don't know what's wrong with this. I feel like the second verse is broken. And he'll be like, actually, I think your third verse is actually your second verse. Your second verse you should just get rid of. And your chorus needs to modulate. And here's, here's what I do. And he'll go over to the piano and try it. Or, and just being, being around a community of artists. That has been the hardest thing about lockdown for me, is just not being in a room with other people playing music. Cause you can do as much zoom co-writing as you want, but you can't play at the same time because of like just how computers work. Right. And there's like, you need to be in the same room sometimes to make a thing. Now that's, what's been hardest for me. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to me. And I think one of the reasons I ask about the writer in residence and, and the Johnny Mercer school, um, is just this the uh, the craftsmanship of songwriting, you know, and and how there are different approaches to it. And sometimes when music publishers get a hold of it, I was thinking of the old days of the Brill Building in New York, right, where they would go in with a suit and tie, sit down at their desk, and write a hit song. And you know, um, and how the passion can still be there. And, and it doesn't take away from the fact that that's still a craft and that's still somebody expressing themselves. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think of writing as a job. Like if I just waited around to be inspired, I would write maybe two songs a year. And I would be, I would be a very good amateur. But the songs, you know, like my record company called me up. They're like, we need two more songs for your album. Go write them. I can't wait around for those songs to be written. If I'm working on a piece of musical theater and you see, you know, your th third song in your show, people really don't clap that much at the end. You're like, uh-oh. And you've got a performance tomorrow, man. Like, I'm going to write a different song for that spot. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what happens. When, um, when I was doing The Lion, there's a song in the show called Weather the Storm that wasn't there until the day before we opened. And... The story, basically, the, the character of my dad teaches the character of Ben a love of folk music. So the character dad is the bestower of wisdom. But what we realized is dad never sung a folk song that bestows wisdom. So Sean Daniels, the director, was like, dude, you're missing a song. We open tomorrow. Go write a song that bestows wisdom. And so I wrote this song called Weather the Storm, sitting in a coffee shop in Edinburgh with, um, with 22 hours until the, show, the, the song had to be performed and the show opened. And it goes like this. Gather round, children, come here to my side. Sit by the fire where it's warm. I'll tell you something was once told to me about the way that we weather the storm. It's not how long the rain falls or how hard the wind blows or how deep is the snow in the road nor the balance we fake when we feel the ground shake and 
we think that our world will explode. It's the help that we give, it's the love that we live, it's our pride and the friendships we form. It's the courage we show, facing things we don't know, it's the way that we weather the storm. You try to stand tall, but you slip and you fall. In the earth is the sound of the stars. Truth gets revealed when you're broken and healed. Every heart is made stronger by scars. It's not how long the rain falls or how hard the wind blows or how deep is the snow in the road nor the balance we fake when we feel the ground shake. We think that our world will explode. It's the help that we give. It's the love that we live. It's our pride in the friendships we form. It's the courage we show facing things we don't know. It's the way that we weather the storm. So go on your journeys. Be bold and be brave. Be lions, my boys, and be strong. And when it is such that it all feels too much, then remember the words to this song. It's not how long the rain falls, or how hard the wind blows, or how deep is the snow in the road. Nor the balance we fake when we feel the ground shake, and we think that our world will explode. It's the hell that we give, it's the love that we live, Pride and the friendships we form. It's the courage we show facing things we don't know. It's the way that we weather the storm. It's the way that we weather the storm. So that was a song born out of a time limit necessity. Hmm. And Benjamin, it brings up, if I can compose myself, I absolutely greatly appreciate you playing. That's, that's one of my favorites. I think I alluded to that in my email. Um, and the so fact that you can just uh, bestow wisdom on cue is pretty impressive. Um, Here's the <laughs> if, I, if somebody told me to write a song where I had to bestow wisdom, I think I would find it next to impossible because I was writing a song as my father it allowed me the ability to bestow wisdom from his perspective that otherwise I felt were I to share it with people from me, I wouldn't feel like it was, uh, I wouldn't feel like it was valid. But because I was writing it from the perspective of my own dad, who I had such great admiration for, it, it allowed me to write in someone else's voice. Now, of course, when we as writers write in enough other people's voices, really we're only ever actually writing in our own and we're just drawing from different pots in the, in the paint box. But it felt at the time that it wasn't me talking. And that gave me great, <laughs> that gave me greater freedom, I think. 
Well, I'm and- so, so glad you like that song, Dan. Okay, so I'm not sure if you can tell if you're just listening to the audio version of this, but if you're on nam.org and watching the full video version of this podcast episode that has all of us on video as well as this interview, then you will definitely know that Dan got very excited <laughs> for Benjamin's performance of Weather the Storm. Yes. <laughs> and for good reason. <laughs> Well, that song is what introduced me to his career. When I first heard that, when it came out, I started digging around and saying, oh my gosh, this guy's got an incredible resume. Learn about the lion and all of that stuff. And um, so when he had the opportunity during the interview, it was clear he was able to sing some songs for us and wanted to. I was like, yes, I'm going <laughs> to ask him. <laughs> he did not disappoint. Love that tune. Really great so so interesting and and uh you know i i use the word clever a lot because in my mind it's it's a way of conveying something that gets inside and i think that um i'm kind of pre um introducing the next segment but to to me the craft of songwriting is really best defined by my favorite songwriter, and that's Irving Berlin. And there was a great quote that somebody said about Mr. Berlin. Uh, His name was Jerome Kern, another very famous songwriter in the 30s and 40s. He said that uh, Irving was blessed with every man's ear and heart. And I thought that is so true about somebody who can write a song like Benjamin has done time and time again, that really gets to you that really um, even if it's not your story it's meaningful to you because you can relate to it and i think the the higher compliment in there is when you say well gosh i wish i wrote that you know i i could feel that i you know i could relate to that um and i think that that's a charming part of um songwriting i think to me is is just those abilities and when you have it and you have it in spades like benjamin does it's really remarkable to watch that um develop and and see why that happened and how it happened and uh so yeah that was a very special moment for me for sure and um and I'm glad Mike can tease me about it a little bit. I, I didn't know what word to use. I didn't want to say giddy, but I guess I was giddy too. <laughs> it was a big well, deal. <laughs> yeah. And I have to just jump in and say, as as we all know how excited you were for What of the Storm, I, you know, I would, we have to bring up his other song that he performed just recently, which was I Am Samantha, mm. which I mean, it was such a fantastic song. And, you know, the story behind it is um, inspiring and amazing. It's amazing that he could sit there and talk to his friend and get uh, her story and and be able to convey that in such a meaningful way for both her and others. Um, again, it just speaks to his excellent songwriting skills. And like you were saying before, like, have, I think you mentioned it in the interview even, having that you know double meaning of of saying i am samantha and and what that means and just i was blown away when i heard it and such a beautiful song and and Mm. such a great meaning behind it so i just had to shout that out (laughs) oh that's well said and you know it kind of goes to what i was saying earlier about 
writing something that expresses you that that you feel is part of who you are and you mm -hmm. wish you wrote it because that's how you feel yeah. and how wonderful to have Samantha express that same feeling back to Benjamin. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's, that is, you got it. You understand yeah. what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. That's who I am. And that's a beautiful thing without yeah. a doubt. Yeah, really. I think we should start the Benjamin uh, fan club. <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. I'll be the first president. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna nominate you for president, so I'm glad you stepped in. <laughs> okay, well, let's get back into the interview. Um, because um I, I just loved hearing him uh, talking, and I think we'll have an opportunity to hear a little bit more about whether the storm coming up. But I did ask him um his thoughts about Irving Berlin as well as um some of the songs that he wished he wrote. <laughs> Let's get back to Benjamin. I was asked by my record company, Dan, to write a Christmas song. And Irving Irving Berlin was, you know, that's that's the uh that that's the sort of pinnacle of great Christmas songs. I, I think that might be the second best selling single of all time, or so it's sold like a hundred million copies in terms of just any version of the song. Like the kind of song that you can't believe anybody ever even wrote. It just exists. <laughs> I how totally yeah, how do we make something like that? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a book that I've been really enjoying, which is the Paul Zolo collections of uh, of interviews with different songwriters, Randy Newman, Bob Dylan, uh, James Taylor, Paul Simon, and uh, I mean, like pick pick us Tom Petty, you know, all the songwriters that you like are in there. Paul McCartney, and and just reading interviews where they talk about just this kind of stuff. Like, how do you, how do you write a song? James Taylor said something really interesting. He speaks a number of different languages and he talked about when he's working on a song in English, just in his own mind, translating it into another language and then back into English just to see what he gets from that. Like what colors come, what sounds come. And I thought that was so fascinating. I don't speak uh, any other languages and uh, what, what a pity, I wish I could so I could I could just just to be able to write in sort of more nuanced ways in English. So I'll have to I'll have to do a co-write with James. <laughs> if you're listening, I'm your guy. <laughs> well, speaking of other songwriters, I, I want to hit you with an unfair question. Um, and maybe not so unfair as a lover of other music. I wonder, is there, is there a song that comes to mind that you wish you wrote a, a, a lyric or some, a hook or something? You, My God, I wish I had done that. Yeah, so many. Um, absolutely. The song To Make You Feel My Love by Bob Dylan is as close to a perfect song. Uh, Clouds by Joni Mitchell. Um, I Think It's Going to Rain Today by Randy Newman. Um, Lose Yourself and Cleaning Up My Closet by Marshall Mathers, best, best known as Eminem. I mean, these are these are songs that are so they're archetypical in the or the uh, the gambler the gambler sung by Kenny Rogers but written I can't recall the name of the writer the gambler is actually very much an inspiration for the song weather the storm because it's sort of older figure bestows wisdom that's that's what that song is whereas uh, to make you feel my love is 
simply the songwriting beat, I Love You. Uh, Joni Mitchell's Clouds is a particular form. It's A, B, A, B, A, B. And the hook is in B, and each time the hook becomes something a little different. And the first time it's, I really don't know clouds at all. Then it's, I really don't know love at all. And then it's, I really don't know life at all. And it's, it's a perfect example of this kind of songwriting. So oh, the song Zion by Lauren Hill is a song that I cannot hear without crying, as is the song Sparrow by Alan Schmuckler. I cannot hear that song without crying. There's a song by a British songwriter called Jim Murray called The Sounds of Earth. And it's about the record that we shot into space, the gold record with like all the different sounds of earth. But it's, it's about a whole lot more than that. But it manages to sort of contain its metaphor. You know, how can, how can we as songwriters say something so specific that feels like it contains such a huge metaphor, but, but really like the substance of the metaphor is actually just a very tangible thing. It, it, uh, I mean, uh, a place I try to do it in, in Weather the Storm is there's a line, every heart is made stronger by scars. Well, for those of you who can see the video is over here. I have a literal scar on my heart that when I was getting chemotherapy, they put the tube down into my heart and so they had to cut me open to do it. And so my heart is a scar on it, which literally made the skin stronger. And so that's what I wrote when I said every heart is made stronger by scars. But I think it's perhaps understood in the song as a sense of metaphor. So how can we be very specific in our lyric writing and how can that then be understood as, as metaphor? That, that's, I'm really drawn to that in other writers writing and all of the songs I've just mentioned really do that kind of thing. They have such great specificity and that allows it to then gain a universality because we sort of put our own metaphors on top of the songs. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very well said. Um, just out of curiosity, what were your thoughts when you first saw the cartoon of um, Weather the Storm? Oh, you mean the, the animated video done by Peter Bainton? Yeah. Well, so Pete and I have done a lot of work together. Uh, our first video that we created together was for uh, a song of mine called The Lion, which is the title track in the show. And Pete and I worked together on every step of the way of each of our, uh, each of our films. And so when we did the video for Weather the Storm, we knew we wanted to tell a particular linear narrative, meaning we wanted to have some characters. Now, of course, the song Weather the Storm doesn't have specifically named characters in it. And so Pete, Pete developed the characters of Dickie and Dot. Now, we don't know their names in the video, but I'll tell you, know, I'll tell you what their names are. And they're an old couple. And uh, Dot has died, and Dickie is all alone, and then Dickie goes on a quest to get toothpaste. And it's a quest because Dot has always bought the toothpaste. And so again, it's a little metaphor for you're missing something in your life. What's, is Dickie missing toothpaste, or is really he missing his wife and his love and his old life? And when he goes in this, he goes on a journey, and the memory of Dot helps him get the toothpaste, and then he goes home, and he's sort of come to a new understanding and a new acceptance. Now, Pete and I worked on this video from, you know, sketching the characters on napkins in cafes. Uh, but I think when I saw the final film, uh, where did I, where did I first, I might've seen it at the British Animation Awards. 
I might have seen it like a you know I've seen it on a, my computer or my my iPhone, but seen it in a in a in a cinema screen and the British Animation Awards, where I I think it was nominated for best music video perhaps. That it was really just very extraordinary. I think Peter Bainton is basically a genius, and uh, we've made music videos for the song Cookie Tin Banjo. We've made videos for the song Cure. We made one for the Lion, and we made a brand new one which is coming out I think this year for a song called Hello Jemima. And Pete Bainton's just done the new music video for the band The Gorillas, and he's making animated feature feature films. He's check out Peter's work, everybody. And his brother is the guy who was putting up the C12 in the recording studio with me yesterday. His brother is a Grammy award-winning microphone putter-upper. <laughs> Robin awesome. all the Mumford and Sons all the Coldplay like that's that's his twin brother Robin so the whole family is too talented for words mm. and just makes me you know I feel like my brothers and I gotta step it up <laughs> <laughs> I often feel that yes um, hey Benjamin I'd love to take you into a recording studio you're so articulate I, I would love to get just your your sense of what that feeling is for you and you know, at a playback or when things are working just right or, you know, you feel like there's a team effort. I mean, explain a little bit of that for me, would you? Sure. So the record that I've been working on um, for Atlantic and Atlantic Records and for Parlophone, where I Am Samantha is the the first single, uh, has been, for the most part, recorded with the record producer Jeff Crayley and the engineer Jake Loomis at Grand Street Recording in Brooklyn. And it's a, it's a little room, uh, and uh, uh, the songs will always be written before I get into the studio. I'm not a write while in the studio. And when I say the song is written, what I mean is the, the melody and the lyric are finished. Um, a lot of the time, I'm, I really like filling the room with creative people who have ideas that I don't always agree with. Uh, Jeff Crayley likes to work, who's my producer, likes to often work against the sort of first instinct. Now, it's not necessarily an incorrect way to work. It's not a correct way to work. It's just there's, it's a really wonderful, interesting way to work. Because oftentimes, uh, so when I wrote I Am Samantha, for example, um, I wrote it in, in 6, 8. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three. And so I recorded my guitar to a click. And then Jeff came in and programmed the drums such that it went one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So suddenly, the song had an entirely new feel. Uh, and I feel like it really elevated it. So I suppose this serves as an example to show that sometimes people will bring something in the studio where my first reaction isn't, that's amazing. My first reaction is, that's really different than I ever would have thought. And actually sitting with it, there's something quite wonderful about that. So I love being, I love being surprised. Um, the way the vocal for that song was done is I must have recorded it 10 times and then Jeff pieced together a performance that I never gave. Uh, because it was the performance that he as a producer felt best gave the arc of the song. In total opposition to that, yesterday, when I was in the recording studio in London, I wanted to do a song called Lafayette Square, uh, the song that Mary Chapin covered most recently. And um, 
and we tried recording just the guitar and then overdubbing the vocal and something wasn't feeling right. And I said, you know what we should do guys? I want to perform it. I haven't performed a song in so long. So we put up a vocal microphone. We're using a C12 and we put up a guitar microphone. We're using a, a 414 in uh, we did it in figure eight actually just and just so it has complete vocal rejection basically it was pointing right at my guitar but this way at my mouth so there's almost no vocal at all in the guitar mic and rather than record the guitar clean it up record the vocal 10 times edit it fix it tune it this time i asked the engineer to get away from the desk i asked the assistant to get away from the desk and they set up chairs in the room with me and I performed the song to them. And suddenly it was a really different, a really different kind of recording I'd ever done. And the, the, I think the recording actually sounds pretty, pretty tremendous because of it. I, I'd love with your, with your blessing, I'd love to share this song with you. The people are gathered in Lafayette Square to protest the plague that has always been there. Grandmas and parents and children as well in Lafayette Square with their stories to tell. Banners with last words and long lists of names. Voices in chorus demanding a change. Let fairness and justice resound through the air. So sing the people in Lafayette Square. If that seems divisive, disloyal, or tribal, there's a man wants a photograph holding a Bible. He wants to stand outside the church with the book, with a leaderly look. But the people are crowded between him and there in Lafayette Square. He calls up his general, says, here's what we'll do. You'll clear me a path, clear Great Avenue. And capture my likeness through photograph lens. And I'll have a picture to share with my friends. Meanwhile, the people there are not aware of Pharaoh's army descends. Let fairness and justice resound through the air. So sick the people in Lafayette Square. A dozen masked soldiers on horseback come riding. Yellow smoke choking a child on the ground. Pepper balls fired, gas bombs exploding. A sea of batons comes crashing down. History will judge them with truth undeniable. A man with no morals is holding a Bible. He believes those who have read it will think he belongs with the saints and the sages. But he's never read it, and he doesn't know the story of Exodus. There on the pages where God brought his people from bondage to freedom. From Pharaoh led Moses to lands good and large. It's a story that tells of those called on to act to be rid of the monster who thinks he's in charge. One day, our children will ask, were you there? 
Did you walk through the desert of Lafayette Square? Through the smoke and the bombs and the pepper ball air? Were you part of the story or did you not care? Did you sit on the side in a comfortable chair? Did you hold up the Bible like a broke billionaire? Or did you sing out for justice and all that is fair? And join with the voices heard everywhere that fairness and justice resound through the air. So sing the people in Lafayette Square. Let fairness and justice resound through the air. So sing the people in Lafayette Square. That that song took six weeks to write, writing writing every day. Um with a copy of the Old Testament on my desk to make sure I got the stories right and I got the language right. You know, because I mean, like, you can quote other people and get them wrong. You, know, you want to get, you want to, I like getting my quotes right. <laughs> I mean, that, that is sort of out of the Bob Dylan playbook, right? Like, songs yeah. like With God on Our Side, um, Times They Are Changing. You know, I just went back to those, or Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, went back to those lyrics and really kind of studied them and, saw what what did dylan do in order to craft his lyrics and and then i share i mean i i i brought that song to a songwriting group of a number of writers who'd gone to the johnny mercer workshop and and you know played them early drafts and tried it in different keys and tried it on piano tried it on guitar and just really got a lot of notes and after six weeks of working every day it it, it came together and i was recording that song what day is it today? It's Wednesday. I was recording it yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, speaking of being out of the, the Dylan playbook, uh, the, the lyrics about the pepper ball, you know, feeling a smell or, you know, uh, you know, another sensation yeah. in the lyrics, I think is, is hard to do. It's not, it's not an easy task. A lot of people do it and you kind of like, Oh, okay. But, uh, that's very effective, and I think you did a good job with that. Thank you. I, I, I read a Washington Post article, and the things that stuck out to me that were the most sensorially evocative were the pepper balls and the yellow smoke. I, mean, I think the thing about yellow smoke is it's such a, an instinctive thing that smoke is not supposed to be yellow, that if we're in a, a situation, we as just people are in a situation where smoke is yellow, like our sort of animal brain goes up and we're like, that's not right. Smoke's supposed to be gray. It's supposed to be black. It's supposed to be silver. Like that's a wood burning or something. And like, we need to be aware of their fire, there being a fire. But if smoke is yellow, like some, when smoke is this color, I'm holding up a water bottle uh, that's sort of neon green for those of you who can't see it. Like something is weird. And so, not only is like there's smoke in the street and that's weird, but it's yellow. Yeah. I found the sort of like layers of, of <coughs> layers of senses. And it's such a, like, it's, it's such a clear color, like yellow smoke. You're like, Whoa, what, why, you know, orange smoke, green smoke. It's not supposed to be that color, red smoke, blue smoke. Like, well, I would even say like a bar. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, to me, I, instead of the word weird, I think wrong, right? Because yeah. something's wrong 
and yeah. and somebody is wrong. You know, we're brought up that the police are right and the bad guys we're chasing are wrong, right? And people who go to jail, even if they're protesting, are wrong. I mean, that's and and yellow smoke is wrong. There's something wrong with this, and it's not clear cut. It's not who's throwing the you know the rock. It, it's no longer clear cut who's the bad guy, and and those are the things that are I think compelling about those imageries. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I did. I did try to let let the images tell the story rather than being didactic about it. One final thing. I know that I probably went over my time, but this has been fantastic. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts about the pandemic. You know, as sort of a time capsule of this particular time. Uh, you mentioned it a little bit earlier about uh, the restraints on playing live and so on. But uh, I wonder if you could kind of give us your views on that. I found it really hard to write while uh, we were in, in quarantine and lockdown. So my family quarantined in rural Wales, while um, uh, where, where my wife grew up. Hey, Portas, hush. That's my puppy being a little, little noisy bear. Hush, buddy. Yeah, we, we went to rural Wales uh, to my wife's family sheep farm. Um, we were there for 97 days. I saw my in-laws and my wife and my daughter and maybe three other people in that 100 day period. And uh, one thing that I really get my energy from as a songwriter is from people and from people's stories. And, and being around them, not, mer not merely reading about them or seeing them on television uh, or, or in books, but you know, to, to talk to a person. And, and the element of possibility and surprise that if you go down to the local coffee shop, you never know who you might meet. And, uh, and so I really found myself getting very depressed and having finding almost a total inability to create music. I did keep a journal and I wrote every day just to try and remember how strange things were getting. And uh, because we were in quarantine in rural Wales, I was both reading about what was happening in London and reading about what was happening in my native home, you know, the United States, New York specifically. And on top of the the terrible medical disaster that seems to have been in many circumstances been in, in a number of countries been mismanaged. Um, that was obviously, you know, disappointing for disappointing is too nice a word it was horrible for everybody just seeing people getting sick and people dying that and feeling so helpless that, that you know, our citizenry were dying. Uh, as well as not being able to see my mother and not being able to see my brothers. Um, uh, on top of that, you know, of course, the, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations happened in the United States and, and to a lesser extent in the UK. And then seeing how that was responded to both positively and, and negatively and the sort of disinformation that was, that was shared. And obviously everybody was very like, I think oftentimes people's feelings, well, I found myself feeling extremely helpless as a writer. My job is to write about what's going on. I was like, what possibly could I, Benjamin Shore, have to say about COVID and the coronavirus or the Black Lives Matter? Like, it felt too big for me to write about. It felt like being in a fight and being punched in the face and then thinking, oh, well, like, let me write a poem about this now while this is happening. Like, you can't write a, a good line about being punched in the face while you're being punched in the face. I felt like I had no perspective. And so, the, I mean, the song Lafayette Square, 
came from my sort of taking notes and reading articles about what was going on, specifically in the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, but to, to a lesser extent in, you know, COVID's in there, the opening line is the people are gathered in Lafayette Square to protest the plague that has always been there, as opposed to the plague that is just here now. Um, but I, I suppose in terms of art and, and live performance and writing as it relates to this pandemic and quarantine, well, I went to go see my first piece of live theater last week in eight months. There was a socially distanced show in London uh, in the Regent's Park Theater, which is an outdoor theater. And sort of every other seat was empty and all the performers came on stage and they were all wearing masks. And I wondered, is this going to be a whole show where the performers wear masks? And then maybe three or four minutes in, the performers took down their masks and did the show. And it was so moving. I cried. I cried sitting there in my seat by myself. Uh, because I felt like I'd seen myself. I felt like art did its job by holding a mirror up to me. And that's so much what I think my job is as a songwriter, is to hold a mirror up to the world and to let people see themselves. I want to see myself in work. And and I want to help other people see themselves too. And I, I do feel as a musician, I have a, a un, and a theater maker, I have a unique opportunity to do just that. Yeah, well, well said, Benjamin. This has been fantastic. I re really do appreciate you uh, spending time with us, sharing your music and your perspective. It's been very meaningful. It's been really lovely speaking to you. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for, for your interest and for you know, your interest in my work and for all the work that you're doing on behalf of, on behalf of NAM. I think the program is a really cool program and I'm really honored to be part of it. Well, I mean, I think we've all said how fantastic this interview is already. So I don't know how much more I can, we can bestow upon him of how great he is, but um, such a fantastic interview and performance. I mean, there's, we don't get the opportunity that much to be able to also hear the music from, mm. uh, from our interviewees. So I think that's always really fun and special. Uh, and you could tell how much he loved doing that. I'm, like I said before, I'm pretty sure he would have given us the full concert if he would have asked. Dan. <laughs> maybe, maybe next that time be, I will. Yes. Yeah. Maybe that can be the follow-up interview. A whole concert. I like it. A whole it. concert. You know, I was um, trying to think. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say. I mean, just a fantastic and inspiring interview, and really happy we get to share that and a different perspective. I think uh, Dan and I were talking about this uh, last week. I think, but it's just it's nice to have a, um, a different perspective and have him share his opinion, like his thoughts and, and to have a, kind of a little bit more of a modern uh, take on, on songwriting and music uh, that I think we try to honor that, but we also have a lot of, you know, historical and, uh, you know, very, very meaningful uh, interviewees, but this is also nice to have a little bit more of the modern uh, current stuff going on right now and give a snapshot into what's going on right now. So, well, yeah. And that kind of ties into sort of my closing thought is to, um, if you enjoyed what you heard today, I would encourage you to check in with his career. He's got a website, you know, he's easy to find on the internet. And I think there's a lot of great stuff ahead and I can't wait to do another interview and get another check-in because, um, 
he definitely knows how to utilize his gifts and his talents. And I think we all benefit from that. So I can't wait to see what comes next. Well, thank you everybody for listening today or watching if you're on nam.org. Um, we'll be back again with a new episode in two weeks. And just thank you for all the support. Um, if you have any ideas for future episodes, you can always send us some info to library at nam.org. We're always happy to hear your suggestions. So for us, we are gone, but we will be back in two weeks. And until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org. <laughs>